All right, all right. Good morning, beautiful people. Good morning. My name is Sansara Taylor, and I want to welcome you this morning to the Michael Slate Show. So, we are in the run-up to March 8th, which is International Women's Day. This is a internationalist holiday. It's a time to look out to the conditions and the lives of women all over the world and to join with women in rising up to break all the chains. The thousands of years of traditions, patriarchal chains that bind women, and to fight against and towards ending all forms of oppression based on gender and sexual orientation. International Women's Day is a revolutionary holiday. It's a time to unleash the fury of women as a mighty force for a real revolution aimed at emancipating all of humanity. And International Women's Day is a, it's a truly liberating holiday. It's a time to lift our sights, to imagine and envision a world where women and all people can finally and fully walk freely on this earth. Um, so in the today and in the weeks leading up to International Women's Day on March 8th, we're going to be getting into these themes in different ways and bringing this alive. No, International Women's Day is not a corporate holiday. It's not a time to celebrate women who've achieved in the in the uh, existing system of capitalism, imperialism, in the corporate economy or the government of the imperialist powers here, as as it's often put forward by those who are wed to this system. No, it's a revolutionary holiday. We're going to get into its history and we're going to get into its urgency in the world today. But today, so that'll be over the next few weeks, but today we're going to zero in to one particular dimension of this, which is very acutely posed in this country right now which is the intensifying fight over women's fundamental right to abortion. And this is a concentration of whether women will be enslaved, forced motherhood is female enslavement, or whether women will be emancipated, whether women will rise up against this and others standing with them and have this be a very major part of moving towards a revolution to bring this system down and bring into being a new society, a new state power, where women and everybody can work towards full emancipation unencumbered by a state that works against it and actually backed up by a new revolutionary state and a new economy and a new, a new culture that serves that. So we're going to get into that today. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about how we're going to do it in just a moment. But let's get us started and in the right mood for International Women's Day. I want to start with a song by the band Betty. This is called Rise. If one woman hurts, if one woman cries, if one man bleeds, rise. Up, get up, dance, up, get up, sing, up, get up, change everything. Up, get up, dance, up, get up, sing, up, get up, change everything. Silence must stop, violence must end, broken body and spirit will rise again. Strength in numbers, take We're taking our place in one world. 
All right, so that is the band Betty, that is Rise, and we're about to dive in more fully to the emergency facing intensifying horrors facing women in this country and around the world, but also the explosive and liberating power of women doing precisely what that song talked about, rising up. I'm about to tell you about a court case that is almost nobody knows about, but it's going to affect women in every part of this country. Everybody knows or should know that last year the Supreme Court, the fascist pack Supreme Court, Um, overturned the fundamental right to abortion. 50 years of precedent in this country, and already 14 states have banned abortion almost entirely. Tens of thousands of women have been forced to have children they otherwise wouldn't have had. They've been driven into poverty, many trapped in abuse, many saddled with more kids than they can take care of, many forced to drop out of school, many who just had other plans that got uh, crushed by this circumstance or who had to go through excruciating, desperate measures, long travel, go into debt and or lose their job to travel and access abortion elsewhere. This is just the beginning of what's to come. So right now, right now there is a federal judge who was appointed by Donald Trump who sits on a, on a court down in Amarillo, Texas, who is considering a case that has been brought before him. It's an illegitimate case. If we had time, I'd get into why the, the people bringing the case don't have any legitimate claim to standing. They went shopping for a judge. It's a very unprecedented case. It never should have been brought to court. But this is a fascist judge, one of those anti-rule of law theocratic judges that Trump appointed to the federal bench. And they brought this case asking this judge to withdraw the FDA's approval of the drug Mifepristone, which is one of the main drugs used in medication abortions. And... What this judge is about to decide is whether to pull this approval and take Mifepristone off the market. If he does this, no one in any part of the country, no doctor, no abortion provider, no hospital, no one will be allowed to prescribe this. And the most common form of abortion in this country, which is medication abortion, not the suction abortion anymore, um, will be impossible. So writing over at Slate.com, Dahlia Lithwick gave a sense of the massive impact that this would have. She said, given that a majority of abortion patients use abortion pills, this move would overwhelm providers, creating months-long wait lists for abortion procedures, even in deep blue states. The result would be an unprecedented backup as people sought to get surgical procedures or suction abortions instead, and likely thousands of patients in states like New York or California or really anywhere, would be unable to obtain an abortion in time, even if state laws protect their right to do so, end quote. This is a decision that's expected to come down next Friday, February 24th. It is a week away that this could happen. And 
there is a very great danger that the fascists who've been packed onto the judiciary at all levels, all the way up to the Supreme Court, would uphold such a decision. So we're on the threshold of a massive escalation on women's fundamental right to abortion, and almost nobody knows about it. But with that, let's dive into our first segment, what I want to do to get into International Women's Day. And this takes on heightened importance in light of the case I just described to you, the federal case around medication abortion, um, is play a segment of the interview that Andy Z and I did with the revolutionary leader Bob Avakian on the Revolution Nothing Less show, where I asked him about the Supreme Court's decision last year to overturn abortion rights. I asked him what is driving this and how this relates to revolution. Then immediately following that, you're going to hear some the beginning of a conversation I had with Lenny Wolf um, about what Bob Avakian got into and wrangling with this in light of International Women's Day. I'll bring you the beginning of that, then I'll come back before we go into the rest of it. So this is Bob Avakian from the interview I did with him last fall. I want to ask one more question about the situation that we confront, and you touched on it uh, with the Supreme Court overturning women's fundamental right to abortion. And this, as you said, this sent shockwaves across this country and has been shattering the lives of women and girls on a, on a massive scale um, already and worse is to come. And millions of people are outraged by this. Many, many are terrified about it. But most have no idea, no real understanding as to why this is happening. And it really stands out that you have been analyzing and warning about this and leading people in how to fight against this assault on abortion and what it concentrates for decades. I wondered if you could talk some about what you see concentrated in this fight around abortion and how this relates to the revolution that we need to make. Well, first of all, you have to understand, why has there been this attack? And yes, it's been an attack on women's right to abortion. Go ask any of the Christian fascists out there who are the stormtroopers for this, and they'll tell you straight up it's about controlling women and getting women to be back in their subordinate position because in the eyes of these people, they're getting all out of control. That doesn't mean that people who are, you know, trans people who may have the uh, situation where they can get pregnant shouldn't have the right to abortion. Of course they should. But the essence of what's going on here and has been going on for decades is the attack, uh, you know, to, to forcibly subjugate women even more thoroughly and viciously than they already are discriminated against and violently oppressed under this system. And, you know, you have, but then you have to go deeper. Ask yourself, where did all these Christian fascists come from? I mean, yes, you know, they, they, if you listen to them, they'll, they'll often say, that satanic woman, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, went to the Supreme Court in 1962 and challenged the right of schools to carry out prayer in the schools. And the stupid and satanic Supreme Court at that time, before we got a hold of it, that stupid Supreme Court actually went along with it and overturned the right to have prayer in the schools. And ever since they kicked God out of the schools in the early 1960s, because of that satanic woman, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, and that terrible Supreme Court, everything has gone to hell in this country. Now, they'll tell, a lot of them will tell you this, or they'll say it even if you don't ask them, and even if you don't want to hear it. But let's go deeper. Where did this whole Christian fascist thing come from and why? Because there have been, you know, if you go read that Raymond Lotta article on Revcom.us that I referred to, imperialist parasitism and social and class recomposition in the U.S. You know, if you go read that, you will see 
you know, spelled out concretely that there have been major changes both internationally and within the U.S. in the economy. And one of the changes, one of the major changes has been that because of the reconfiguring of the economy, there's more need for people in professional categories, you know, in the, in the technical, you know, categories and so on. And so this has opened up more opportunity, and together with struggle that's been waged since the 70s in particular against the oppression of women, this has resulted in opening up a lot more of these uh, positions including, you know, college admissions and so on, to women. I think women now outnumber men in, in, the, in the universities. And so, you know, that has created a situation where a lot of women, it's not that they're no longer oppressed. I mean, just look at the statistics, how many are raped. You know, look at the massive, you know, pornography, which is just an assault on women as a whole everywhere. You know, and it's not agency, it's oppression, okay? That's one thing that I can't stand is when people who don't really want to take on the system at all or any serious way think they can get over, you know, I don't know whom they're trying to get over on but other than other people who are also suffering, but they try to get over by rebranding oppression as agency. Sex work, that's agency. No, it's not. It's oppression. It's institutionalized, financialized degradation of women. You know, so just to go on it for a second, because I think this is important. You know, some of these people say, well, you know, any, under capitalism, any kind of job you have is exploitative, so what's the difference in sex work? Well, there is a difference. Yes, capitalism is a system based on exploitation, you know, and, you, you know, and especially super-exploitation of people, in, including, as I said, more than 150 million children in the third world. But, you know, if you're working in a factory, say, in Bangladesh, as a woman producing clothes, you're being exploited in producing those clothes, but the product you're, you're, you're working on and producing is clothes. If you're working in the so-called sex industry, which is just, as I said, you know, vicious exploitation and institutionalized and financialized degradation of women, because what is the product? Besides your exploitation, what is the product? The product is the degradation of women. It's not clothes, it's not food, it's not televisions. The product, besides your exploitation, the product is the degradation of women. That's the whole point of it. And the same in pornography. So, you know, all this is a backlash against these changes that have occurred. You know, the incel phenomenon where men, you know, want to rape women because they can't get women to agree to have sex with them the way they want. I mean, they openly talk about raping women, you know. And, this, you know, these are all phenomena that have occurred because of, fundamentally because of underlying changes in the economy, which then interacts with you know, struggles of people and resulting changes in the social relations. And so a big part of what has been driving this fascist movement is these changes that have resulted in women have a little bit more independence, especially women in the you know, more professional categories. But even women working in lower jobs who have their own income, I remember, I never quite knew what exactly he was, he was getting at with this, but I used to have a record way back in the day when I was in high school of the blues singer Lead Belly. And he introduced one of his, he had a song called National Defense Blues because it was about the World War II and when a lot of you know, black people came from the South and one of the first things they did was to get jobs in the war industries, the defense plants. And that included a number of women and so Lead Belly introduced this song. He said, he said, 
People come to me, men, he meant men, come to me and say, lead belly. And I say, yeah. They say, I can't control my woman the way I used to. And I say, yeah. And they say, well, lead belly, you know, they go and work in a defense plant and they got their own money and I can't tell them what to do the way I used to. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, lead belly, can't you do something about this? So he wrote the song National Defense Blues, which wasn't exactly about that. But I never quite knew from what point of view he was <laughs> telling his story. But anyway, it reflects something, and this is happening on a you know, major scale in the last, couple of, in the last n number of decades. So th this is a big part of what's driving the fascist movement, is wanting to forcibly you know, push women and control women back into a subordinated position, you know, even more than they already are under the system, because there's plenty of oppression all the time. But they wanted, you know, back the way it was, even before these minor, relatively minor, but real changes have occurred. All right, we're going to pause BA's answer there. And as promised, I am joined in studio now by Lenny Wolf. Lenny is a longtime follower of Bob Avakian. Lenny, welcome. Well, well, hi to you, Sunsar, and I want to just jump right in here, and um, I want to ask you to respond to what we just listened to in light of the fact that we're in the run-up to International Women's Day on March 8th. You know, there's so much in what we just heard from B.A., but I think uh, listening this time, there's really two things I want to pull out of what he said, and one is where he began. Just stating the truth of the fact that the assault on abortion rights is a concentrated expression of the assault on women and women's lives. And this is so often obscured. It's attacked. There's an erasure of women. Maybe we'll talk about that as we go forward. But B.A. tells the truth on this and puts it in focus. And then he substantiates that more fully through the rest of what we just heard from him, which is the second thing I wanted to pull out of this, is that Bob Avakian situates all these attacks on women in a society that is, yes, patriarchal, but also he looks to the underlying dynamics of this capitalism imperialism and the economic changes, the, the way it's ripped up the traditional forms of family, of life in this country and around the world, and how this is actually what's causing such a violent backlash, such a vengeful, punitive um, resurgence of, of misogynist patriarchy and assault in all these ways. And nobody else looks at this question with that amount of science and materialism and back and forth between, yes, the ideas in people's heads, but not just that, also the underlying system and the way those things are interrelating. And the back and forth between the struggles mm -hmm. that people wage both around this question and other things they come into political life around, which then evoke uh, this uh, very, very deep question of the oppression of women. We're interrupting this conversation that I had with Lenny Wolf, keying off of that interview with Bob Avakian on the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and what was driving that. How do we need to understand the rise and the backlash against women? We're going to be continuing to cover the run-up to International Women's Day in the weeks to come. We're going to, next week we have a great interview that Henry lined up with Marvin Dunn, who is an African-American studies professor out of Florida who has been leading tours of African-American students and others to, to visit historic sites of the civil rights movement and African-American history in this country in open and explicit defiance, challenging a lot of the attacks on public education and in particular on, the, on black history. 
that have been happening nationwide, but especially in Florida by Ron DeSantis. This is somebody who knows his history, who has really uh, stepped out in a way that many others have fallen silent in the face of these escalated white supremacist attacks on black history. Um, We bring you a lot of black history um, and the struggle for the liberation of black people on this show. And we're going to bring you him on this show next week. You are listening to The Michael Slate Show. We're going to take a short musical break and be right back. One way or another, I'm going to find you. I'm trying to. Beneath the surface where the well is deep and wide. Maybe the gather on the moonless skies. I know I've seen them on the other side. We're going to dive back into my conversation with Lenny Wolf. Um, I won't say much more about it because he'll explain where we're at when, when we dip back into it. Let's go. I, I want to go to a, um, a statement that was written almost 40 years ago. And he discusses there some of the changes that had just begun to take shape, which have become very accentuated now. And he says, the whole question of the position and role of women in society is more and more acutely posing itself in today's extreme circumstances. This is a powder keg in the U.S. today. It is not conceivable that this will find any resolution other than in the most radical terms and through extremely violent means. The question yet to be determined is, Will it be a radical reactionary or a radical revolutionary resolution? Will it mean the reinforcing of the chains of enslavement or the shattering 
of the most decisive links in those chains and the opening up of the possibility of realizing the complete elimination of all forms of such enslavement. I want you to respond to what that, that evokes in you. Um, you know, first of all, the, the, as we heard in B.A., the first half of the answer from the interview that we just played from B.A., he is talking about really profound changes in the economy overall and the social position overall and, and how this is leading to a huge fight that's even more acutely posed than when he brought, that, brought forward that statement almost 40 years ago. It's even more acutely and immediately posed for resolution, whether women will be further enslaved and, and beaten down and beaten backwards in very violent ways, or whether this unleashing of the fury of women and the fight against their patriarchal degradation will be a very key and driving force in resolving this in a positive way. Really a revolution that overthrows this system that requires and drives forward this patriarchy. And I think you see this, really you see it all over the world. It's easier, I think, for many people to see if they're willing to look and not be in denial especially in this parasitic country where people can avert their eyes and obsess into themselves. But if you look honestly, you can see the intensifying degradation and enslavement of women. You see it in the incel phenomenon. You see it in the booming sex slavery industry. You see it in the rising Islamic fundamentalism with its terror against women around the world. And you see it in this country with the Christian fascist assault, which is intensifying the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And now this court case that could take away medication, abortion, and many other assaults happening at the same time. But I want to zero in on the possibility for a radical, positive resolution to this. And I think nowhere in the world do you see this more powerfully today and in a way that, that carries more hope and inspiration than the, than the women in Iran, who in the last few months have erupted with just enormous bravery against first the, the killing by the morality police there of Masa Gina Amini, for allegedly wearing her hijab in the wrong way, but then they just, it just uh, the floodgates of fury, of unbridled fury poured out. Women went in the streets, they burned their hijabs, they tore them off, they cut their hair in public, they lit bonfires, and they, you know, school kids shouting down the paramilitary basiji were coming to, like, get them back in their place. And you saw the bravery and the heroism and the power of this uncorked fury, but you also saw, and I think this is strategically significant, the way that this began to unglue and rip apart a lot of the larger cohering so-called legitimacy of that Islamic regime as a whole. I think in this regard, it's worth it to also look last summer here in this country, even though the struggle did not reach nearly enough of a massive level and didn't go far enough and it got derailed and attacked, but there was very significant outpourings that where you get a glimpse of this potential in this country, too, in the run-up to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, and in, then in the immediate out, uh, aftermath. And you saw tens of thousands of very young women, high school women, junior high, college women, furious. And you saw older women who have held, really, uh, for decades, in secret, the, their own terrifying memories of holding friends as they died from illegal abortions that they've held silent. And this came out in a way that I think surprised many of them themselves. It's a fury they didn't know was within them. You were obviously at the forefront of that struggle you just described. And both in that struggle and the struggle in Iran, these are very important struggles. At the same time, they do need to go further 
and they do need to go into a total, they need to be part of a total system change of a revolution. How do you sum up, we can particularly some of the experience of the past year around the struggle for abortion rights from that angle? I want to speak first positively to the positive lessons, and, and we've been wrestling those of us involved in the movement for revolution with how to sum up and, and mine and extract all the positive lessons, as well as to really interrogate the shortcomings and where we needed to have done better and need to do better now going forward. So I'm, I'm raising some provisional thoughts in that context, but also inviting all of you to be part of wrangling with this and sharing your thoughts. But positively, look, at, there is no question it mattered tremendously that I took the responsibility really rooted in the leadership that BA has been providing his analysis on this question of abortion and, and its importance and the liberation of women as part of the revolution to, to go out and the analysis of the need and the basis to unite very broadly that I played an initiating role in rise up for abortion rights together with others from different perspectives. And we forged a movement and an organization that did unite people with radically different points of view, different experiences in a very ferocious struggle that, that raised the demand, legal abortion on demand and without apology, that told the truth, forced motherhood is female enslavement. It matters that this was challenged. Some of what developed, not only because of the fascist assault, but also because it was being challenged, and you saw that two-sidedness, you started to see things with very significant implications looking forward to a revolution. Um, things like women, veterans, of the U.S. military, it's enforcers of its system around the world who said, you know, I thought I was fighting for our freedoms in this country, but look what they're doing to women. I don't believe in this anymore. They lit their uniforms on fire. They did it publicly. You start to see how th these attacks, if challenged and fought, could be part of splitting open the ruling institutions. That has profound implications for revolution. So there's, there's a lot of positive lessons to mine. At the same time, there are important uh, negative lessons to sum up as well. When people rise up, you know, they're going along, their thinking is shaped by this system, they're living under this system, they're not out in the street, then something shocks them and challenges them, this decision comes down, they were outraged, they went into the streets, but they're still carrying a lot of the thinking of the system. And we needed to and still need to do much more to go after the backwards ways of thinking that they're still carrying. And, you know, one example, and, and, and it wasn't just what they were carrying. It was also forces against this struggle who were attacking it, attacking it, trying to suppress it, trying to derail it from the Democratic Party, from the so-called movements who are tied to the Democratic Party and really invested in keeping this system stable and going along. Um, so one of the big attacks they did, and B.A. spoke to it in the beginning of the, of the excerpt that we just played, is they tried to erase the word woman and erase women from the struggle overall. And they would attack Rise Up, and they would attack me and BA for even using the word women in talking about abortion. They'd say, you're being transphobic, because, there are, yes, there are trans people and non-binary people who also need abortions. And that should be defended, and the, and the attacks on trans people need to be forcefully fought. But the attack on abortion is a concentration of the drive against women, and that needs to be understood and fought for, and obscuring that actually disarms people to fight. And so that's something we needed to go after much more much more forcefully. One of the biggest attacks and most vicious attacks and coordinated attacks was on Bob Avakian, on the Revcoms, and on myself as a follower of Bob Avakian, casting him, claiming he was some kind of manipulative, spooky, scary cult leader that you should stay away from. And this is just completely 
outrageous, it's grotesque, and it's cowardly. Baba Vakin has done more than anybody in identifying and leading people and fighting for people to have the understanding and the programmatic approach to fight the assaults on abortion rights and the larger Christian fascist assault, yes, on trans people and others. And he's continued to, to put this forward and to, and to substantively bring forward how this is linked to a revolution. It's one thing to engage, disagree, argue over what he's saying, but that's not what people were doing. They were trying to use scare words and attack him and scare people away precisely to keep people in the bounds of this system and to isolate the idea of revolution and the struggle that, that actually needs to be uncorked and where it can go. And, and this was outrageous, and we needed to much more aggressively, much more early on, take this on and make it boomerang and actually as a, become a way in which more people got attracted to this controversy, leaned in. What is he saying? What, is, what do I think of it? And actually use this to advance the struggle for revolution. Because you engage BA, you get substantive answers. You get a critical thinker. You get a scientific revolutionary leader. You do not get a cult leader. And that's, a, that's our greatest strength. And we needed, we needed to and we need to be much more combative and, and out on the offense around that. All right, so that was uh, myself, Sansara Taylor, in conversation with Lenny Wolf, picking up on and uh, the interview excerpt from Bob Avakian and talking about much of that in light of the upcoming International Women's Day, March 8th. Um, with that, I want to dip back into the final exchange and the conversation that I had with Lenny Wolf about exactly this, where we lift our sights to what could be made real through an actual revolution. I really fully agree with both those points, and I think that the larger point you're making that um, the revolution moves forward by actually uh, mining its experience for both the positive and the negative and subjecting it to, yes, scientific analysis. And again, nobody has been more exemplary in that light than uh, Bob Avakian, including, I would just say, if you go to Revcom.us and you look in the collected works that uh, BA has done on the on the oppression uh, of women, there is a tremendous amount of really re-examination of the feminist movement and thinkers of the 19, late 1960s uh, and uh, into the 70s and beyond. There's a real look at the Marxist movement and what it did bring forward, but what its shortcomings were, how we carried forward some of those shortcomings. But at the same time, again, just to underscore it, there is nobody who has done the work that he has done on this question and where it sits in the world today. And I would challenge anybody to disprove that. Part of what that work has been has been to actually envision in a different way to build on the experience of the past, but to go much further, to, to criticize it where it was wrong, to get the um, kernel of what was correct and bring that forward, on what kind of society could actually liberate women as part of emancipating all of humanity. This is crystallized in the Constitution for the New Socialist Republic in North America, authored by Bob Avakian. And um, I want to ask you, okay, you make a revolution, you, you bring forward millions of people, you shatter their um, instruments of violent domination and repression. You've got a new, re uh, a new government with 
you know, new laws, new ways of doing things that is now uh, taking ownership of the ways in which the wealth of the society is produced uh, so that it's collective ownership. You've made all these changes. What happens on day one in this new society around this question of the liberation of women? And what happens in year 12 or year 15? Trip out a little bit. Okay, well, it's a, first of all, it's a great question, and everybody should be thinking, and we actually all should be thinking about this, reading this and envisioning and wrestling with what will be made possible. In this Constitution, it is, like you said, it rests on a radically different economic foundation. It's not based on exploitation and profit. All the things that B.A. described in the first answer about the way that capitalism, imperialism is driving forward and reinforcing and, and, and giving rise to vicious revenge against women, those underlying dynamics won't be there. So there's things that you can change day one in the realm of law, and we will. You know, this Constitution, the new state power, guarantees the right to abortion. It guarantees uh, the fundamental rights of women to participate in society fully and equally together with men, and it backs that up. But it also has an underlying economy that, that enables you to go to work at overcoming a lot of the ways in people's relations. I mean, think about it. Right now, one of the things that drives women into the sex industry, a lot of women who are caught up in it, they, they're trying to support a child. You know, they, they don't, they're in desperate conditions. Why do women stay with abusers? Yes, there's the way they're conditioned, but a lot of it is because they're economically trapped and don't have a way to get out or to take care of the kids if they do. And so they're trapped in, in living with abuse. This is very common. Well, Socialism, a new state power, enables you to go at those changing the relations among people and their thinking and how they relate. But it also starts to change the underlying economic foundation so that kids are not the sole responsibility of the patriarchal family and in particular the mother, where she is desperate and driven to extreme ends and in an extremely vulnerable situation to be exploited because she is uniquely responsible for those children. And then there's all kinds of realms in the thinking of people and the daring of women and differently gendered people to challenge the ways they've been told to stay in their place and what tradition is and what's the right way and the wrong way to have sex or to relate to others or to, to dress and to be, you know, there's all kinds of attitudes that'll be in the, in religion and, and teachings. There's going to be an education system that every child is required to participate in public education that, that teaches Actual science and biology about people's bodies, about evolution, about how we came to be, about reproduction. These are going to be, they're going to create a different atmosphere. There's all kinds of dimensions that we can explore in the arts and the culture and the, in the uh, you know, in the media as it's envisioned and concretized here. I, you know, there's a lot to trip out on. I'm only beginning to. Maybe you want to add some things to it. But I think, I think there's a, there's a whole radical interpenetration between things that you can change right away with laws that are concretized, things that start to change in the economy that give you more space, and things that will change in the struggle that gets waged by women against their continued forms of oppression and tradition that will be given backing by the culture overall. Yeah, I think just one dimension I would want to add or infuse into that is that this is going to be a society in which debate, dissent, Critical thinking isn't just tolerated or, I mean, you know what I love in America, 
You can do that over in the free speech zone. Way the <laughs> hell over there. You can go uh, carry your sign where nobody can see you. No, this is going to be fostered. We want that. There's a, the third, the whole third reel of the interview with Bob Avakian goes into why we want that and what kind of society that's going to give you. Yes. There's a solid core to the society. There's rules. There's laws. There's a direction. But on that basis, the widest possible dissent, and on this question in particular, that's going to be a, a, a big thing. All right. So that was uh, Lenny Wolf in conversation with myself, Sansar Taylor. And we were responding to and uh, in, in kind of keying off of a segment of the interview that I did with the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian, on the assault on abortion, but also what's driving this and the underlying systems of capitalism, imperialism. So aggressively assaulting the rights of women, LGBTQ people, other people, black people, immigrants, destroying our planet, all of this. Um, but what's possible through a revolution that gets rid of this system? You are listening to The Michael Slate Show. We're going to take a short musical break and be right back. We've got some time left, so I'd like to play this. It's the second half, the answer from Bob Avakian. So this, this is a big part of what's driving the fascist movement, is wanting to forcibly, you know, push women and control women back into a subordinated position, you know, even more than they already are under the system, because there's plenty of oppression all the time. But they wanted, you know, back the way it was, even before these minor, relatively minor, but real changes have occurred. And so the, the other thing to understand is the leaders of this Christian fascism, going back to someone like Jerry Falwell, who founded the Moral Majority and f founded uh, you know, Liberty University. Now, you know, one of the things that, you know, I never realized this until I was reading recently, Liberty University is a massive university now. It has tens of thousands of students. And, you know, 
I like to I like to follow the NCAA tournament championship, but fuck it, here comes Liberty University all of a sudden playing it. I say anybody, anybody, beat these motherfuckers, okay? <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I'll even root for Baylor. Just fucking <laughs> another Christian bunch of Christian fundamentalists. Just beat these motherfuckers and get them out of this tournament now, okay? But you know Jerry, Jerry Falwell founded, you know, that university and got going with the moral majority, him and Pat Roberts and all these Christian fundamentalists. And Jerry Falwell, at the beginning, in the 50s, was openly opposed to the civil rights movement. And then he had to do a whole mea culpa, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have opposed that. Well, then he turned around and opposed the anti-apartheid movement in, in South Africa in the 80s, by the way. So he wasn't that sorry. But what he did recognize, this is tactically unwise. You know, the civil rights movement, you know, the, the ruling class of this country, because of its needs internationally, is going to make concessions to the civil rights struggle. It's going to, you know, abolish some legal segregation, open up some positions to black people, and, you know, so on and so forth. So he switched gears, and then they, in the 70s, they concentrated their whole thrust around the oppression of women. They decided this is, you know, one of them openly said, this is a door through which we can get all these, you know, people who are upset about all these things, including the, you know, the concessions to the struggle against white supremacy. We can get them all by making the, the thing about abortion, so-called killing of babies. And so, you know, this is why they took this up. And, but, you know, again, all this was, you know, what was going on, or, on underneath all this was changes in the economy because of the needs of U.S. imperialism to contend in the world, both economically and in militarily, because your military, after all, where does it get its weapons from? Where does it get its, uh, you know, logistics from? Where does it get its supplies from? Where does it get its food from? From the economy. So they had a need to contend internationally. And, you know, this is why, for example... If you include China, 80% of the production workers in the world are in the third world. And, you know, here's a statistic that shines light on what I'm talking about. Just a couple of decades ago, a little less than 60% of the clothes that people wear in this country were made in this country. Now it's 1% or 2%. They're made in places like Bangladesh and other places where there are all these garment factories viciously exploiting people, particularly women. So, you know, this was the changes that led, in turn, led to the changes in the U.S. economy where you had more of these professional jobs. And that's why, you know, along with the struggle, there was more opening for women. And this is what has driven this fascist movement, you know, and, and is why it's taken on this religious cloak, you know, but it's a real thing, this religious fundamentalism. Because if you look at the Bible, I don't care. I know a number of years ago there were these feminists who didn't want to let go of the Bible. And so they wanted to, you know, this is, think about it in terms of things today. They wanted to go through and change all the pronouns in the Bible. So instead of it would God, you know, would be he, God would be it. Well, here's the problem. You can change all the pronouns, but you can't change the reality. The Bible is a thoroughly patriarchal document from beginning to end, from the book of Genesis all the way through to Paul's epistles and all the rest of it. It's a patriarchal document, you know, horrific patriarchy, in fact, if you look at it. I mean, women should be killed for having sex before they're married. You know, if they're not virgins when they get married, you know, you, you have to show the bloody sheet. 
to prove that they were virgins? I mean, first of all, not all women bleed when they first have sex, but leaving that aside, you know, you have to show the bloody, bloody sheet or else the woman should be put to death in the, in the town hall or the town center. This is a patriarchal document, so you can go changing all the pronouns, but you can't change the patriarchy. God is still going to be God the Father, the patriarchal oppressor. This is the way it is. This is the reality. So, you know, this, this is why this religion was, you know, a useful way to rally all these fascist forces. Because, it, because if you took it, you know, look, there are liberals and progressive people who are religious. And some of them do very good things. And we should appreciate that and unite with them as far as possible in the struggle against oppression. And many of them say, look... You know, there's bad stuff in the Bible, just like there's bad stuff in everything. There's bad stuff in communism. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's bad stuff in the Bible, yes. But, you know, we choose to focus on the message of Jesus, which is to do right by the poor and so on and so forth. Okay, you know, they're practicing what I call, you know, salad bar Christianity. They go down the line, oh, I don't like this one here. You know, like children who disobey their parents should be put to death. Oh, no, not that one, you know. But, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, like... Feed the poor. Yeah, I can go with that, you know. In fact, the Christian fascists practice salad bar Christianity, too. You know, if you start challenging them, what about this stuff here? You know, some of them openly will say that homosexuals should be put to death, as it says in Leviticus. But a lot of, most of them will say, well, you know, that was the Old Testament. Now we got a New Testament. You know, we got a new covenant with God in the New Testament. So that's different. But you go to the New Testament, and Paul is all about women should be subordinate to men. And he links it back to the Old Testament. He links it back to Eve in the garden. You know, when she's the one that got taken in by the stake, and then she misled Adam. So now childbirth is going to be a burden for women because of that. It's all, you go read the Bible if you have time. You know, this is, this is all in there. But it's a, so if you're a fundamentalist, what do you do? You take all the stuff that really is, leans heavily in on this patriarch and these oppressive relations. You know, the Bible defends slavery, for example. Now you see some of these fascists openly saying, well, you know, slavery wasn't really that bad. You know, it, it did, you know, some of the conditions of the slave improved from how they were living in Africa. I mean, just horrific stuff like this. You know, and I see Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, made a statement where he said, you know, nobody started questioning slavery until the United States was founded with the Declaration of Independence saying that all, pe all, all men are created equal. Well, this is just absolute bullshit including, as I pointed out before, I think some of the slaves at least were questioning slavery before the Declaration of Independence was written, including in the uprisings of slaves even during the colonial days before the country was founded. But see, they lean on this Bible and this heavy religious stuff for two reasons. And I know I, I've gone on, but I'm going to just finish this point. For two reasons. One, because it is heavily patriarchal and it does uphold all kinds of horrific oppression, oppressive relations and, and slaughter of people who don't get with the, with the right God and so on. If you don't believe me, go read the Bible with an open mind. The other thing is religious, fun, religious fundamentalism, and this is true of religion in general, but all the more so of religious fundamentalism, teaches people to be unthinking. It teaches people to accept things, quote unquote, on faith. It teaches them to be slavishly following religious authorities. And so this is very, if you want to develop a fascist movement, you need legions of unthinking people 
who are anti-scientific. And you can see it, all the conspiracy. You know, I saw somebody raise an objection about calling conspiracy theories theories because they're not really theories, but leaving that aside. They don't, they don't deserve to be called theories. But leaving that aside, you got all these conspiracy theories, you know, and all the rest of it, all these people, QAnon, all the rest of these people, you need legions of unthinking people if you want a fascist movement. The exact opposite, by the way, of communism, which needs legions of critically and creatively thinking people. So this is why the, the Christian fundamentalism is such a you know, powerful and useful rallying cry for all these people who basically their position is, and this is why they said the 2020, and this is the underlying reason why they all believe fervently you know, with religious zeal that the 2020 election was illegitimate and stolen from Trump is because they regard the people who voted for the Democrats, and we don't want them voting for Democrats, by the way, although in 2020 we did, and we can get into that too if you want, but in general, we don't want them voting for Democrats, but all the people who voted for the Democrats, you can go down the list, gay people, you know, the LGBTQ, you know, uh, women, especially women, you know, and there are lots of women fascists, by the way, we have to recognize, but women, especially thinking women, women who don't want to be subordinate to men, black people in their overwhelming, Latinos in large numbers, all these people uh, in the eyes of the Christian fundamentalist fascists are illegitimate. So therefore, in their thinking, and it's just barely beneath the surface, if not right on the surface, in their thinking, if those people are the ones, for, are the reason why the Democrats won the election, then the election's illegitimate. And that's why they believe all these, you know, theories that have been, you know, and uh, accu uh, assertions and claims that have been, mis you know, disproved about fraud in the election, because it doesn't matter to them, really, if it was fraudulent or not. It was illegitimate because all these people who were not legitimate, not real Americans, not what we want this country to be about, and should be put back in their place as violently as necessary, if not literally wiped out. All those people are the reason why we didn't win the election. Thank you to Gary Baca for engineering. I want to thank the whole Revolution Nothing Less crew for some of the segments they put together that we shared with you today. There really is nothing like the Michael Slate Show. It has been my honor and my privilege to be on the airwaves uh, stepping in his shoes in the recent weeks. And my name is Sansara Taylor on behalf of the Michael Slate Show. I will be back next week. And until then, remember, the problem is not human nature. It is the nature of the system. Through a real revolution, a better world is possible. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from
Manhattan Then we take 